Uh, I, this morning I'll be preaching from Colossians chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 24, all the way to chapter 2, verse 5. In your pew Bible, you can find it on page 983. 983 Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 24. This is uh, part of a, ser- a series of sermons that I've been preaching this fall uh, at RUF. And I preached, I think the first two of them I tried out here. And then they worked pretty well at RUF too when I did them. And it was nice to have, to start the semester having already written uh, a couple sermons for y'all. So uh, thank you for letting me warm up on you all. But now I'm warmed up and I've already done this one. So I'm, uh, however, there is uh, one of the things I wanted to do is uh, kind of take what Paul was talking about and his perspective on his own ministry and maybe just give you a little bit of a window into what's happening in RUF at UNCW. So, you know, a good preacher will take the text and then apply it to you all, but actually I'm going to be applying it to the students at UNCW and what is happening there. So forgive me. Hopefully you can see some of your own situation in the situation of the students and God's word will still bear fruit, I pray and hope. So let's uh, stand if we're able to uh, read God's word together, Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's have a seat for a moment and take a minute to reflect on God's word. You'll want to uh, keep your Bibles open if you can, just to follow along with us as we're in Colossians 1 here, starting in verse 24. Um, Paul has kind of is reaching the end of his introduction of his letter. Now, you might remember that he's never really met this church in Colossae before, that actually a disciple of Paul's, a man named Epaphras, planted this church. And so Paul had word that some divisions were kind of uh, bubbling up within the church. There were some kind of cliques forming in the little community there. Uh, Some people were kind of separating themselves and uh, kind of saying they were holier than the rest of the group, and it was creating all kinds of conflict. And so Paul writes this letter just to remind this church of what's true, of what they've believed, and to encourage them to kind of stay on the main straight path of the gospel. 
And Paul has just gotten done with uh, really one of the most beautiful parts of the New Testament, uh, which was this hymn to Jesus in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, just kind of all these phrases that just talk about in him and through him and for him uh, are all things. And it's just, it's wonderful. Uh, You can go back and read it later. We're not going to be in that part uh, this morning. Now Paul has kind of uh, put Jesus kind of on the map, and then he's putting the church on the map, saying, and you, you have been implicated in what Jesus has done, and now he's going to kind of put himself on the map and say, hey, and this is my role in the story of the gospel. And it reminds me, um, coming back here, uh, of a, a morning on December 4th, uh, 2011, uh, my wife Shauna and I, who will be in the second service, we, we came to church here, and we were sitting like back in that row, kind of maybe exactly where uh, Caroline is right now. So we were like back there, and um, it was the beginning of Advent, and so we're seeing the first kind of Christmas carol of the season. We were so excited, and it was Go Tell It on the Mountain. David's up here. He's leading the singing. I'm back there with Shauna, and she is a week overdue, uh, nine months and a week, you know, pregnant with Gus. And so we're back there, and we're singing, and we're getting into it. I mean, we're clapping. Uh, you know, that back right corner gets it. And so we were back there singing really loudly and clapping. And then all of a sudden, Shauna looks at me and she's like, I just, I'm going to run to the bathroom real quick. And I was like, that's fine, because I love this song. So I'm just going to keep singing. So I was, I was just warming up at that point and really excited to sing some Christmas carols. Because you wait all year for, to, for a month of singing Christmas carols. So I was like, this is my time. And then she comes back and she says, hey, my water just broke. Well, we need to go. And so in the service, you know, we leave, and the funniest thing is, uh, I guess maybe someone texted Paul or something, like halfway through the service, Paul said, just so you know, Shauna's water broke, and everyone was excited, and they cheered. So I heard. I wasn't there. So we're, we're running out of the building, and I just want you to imagine this. We're, we're running out of the building. You know, we had grabbed some towels from the kitchen and stuff. Sorry, I don't know if we ever returned those. And so we're, we're in my car, and we're peeling out of the parking lot to get to the hospital, and we're thrilled. Like, we're super excited. I'm looking at her, and there's this big smile on her face. But when you think about it, it's kind of strange, right? Because she's about to go through what turned out to be, you know, you know, almost a full day of really painful labor. Probably some of the worst, like, pain she's experienced in her life. So she was about to, she was on the edge of a period of pretty intense suffering, but we were looking at each other, and we were full of joy. Why is that? Well, it's because that there are certain kinds of suffering that we experience in this world that are not opposed to joy. They don't diminish joy. They actually produce joy. A lot of times when we go through periods of suffering or trial or um, we suffer some kind of misfortune, we feel like, you know, this is useless, (laughs) this is pointless, there can't be any value in it. But I think what Paul's trying to show us in describing his ministry this morning is that there are actually some kinds of suffering that we can suffer as a Christian in God's kingdom, under God's care, that are useful, that are productive that don't actually um, you know, take life away, but they actually bring new life into the world. There are certain kinds of suffering that are worth it. 
And so Paul's looking at the pain that he's experienced in his life and in his ministry, and he's saying, yeah, it's been really, really hard, but I got to tell you, it's been worth it. And that's kind of, it's funny, uh, just as I saw Calvin this morning, he was asking, well, how's your new job? And I kind of, I wanted to save it for the sermon, but this has kind of been my response to people is to say, you know, it's been really hard. There's parts of it that are really difficult. It's a lot of work, but it's worth it. There's a joy kind of beyond the struggle and the trial. And so that's what I want to talk about uh, this morning. Paul is going to try to connect the pain that we suffer in our lives to what Jesus has accomplished in his death and in his resurrection. And in describing his ministry, Paul's going to show us how the gospel transforms our experience of labor and struggle and then rolls it over into overflowing joy. For Christians, the good news that God loves us and has committed himself to us is so big that it changes the way we think about our lives, our joys, and even our struggles. And so uh, first, just to kind of lay this foundational piece in kind of thinking about how suffering could possibly be worth it as a Christian, Paul wants to remind us first that God is sovereign over our story. If you'll remember the story of Paul's life, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but he started off as a Jewish religious scholar. He he calls himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. And as far as we know, uh, he never actually encountered Jesus during the three years of Jesus' kind of pre-resurrection ministry. Uh, So Paul, who was this religiously serious, really devoted uh, Bible student, hears about a new religious group called the Christians. Um, he believes that they were kind of spreading lies and, uh, about God, and they were um, trying to add to the Bible, you know, and kind of change things. So this, Paul is a very serious person. He's very committed to uh, God's cause. He says, well, I got I to gotta oppose these guys. I gotta, we're going to try to take them out. And so he actually um, tries to get some of the early uh, Christians killed. He's present in Acts 7 at the death of Stephen, one of the, the first martyr of the church. And so Paul is at one point uh, in Acts chapter 9, he's on his way uh, on this road to Damascus with a warrant for the arrest of a bunch of other Christians that he was about to kill. And then God kind of stops him on the road with this flash of blinding light, and God strikes Paul blind and tells him to go visit a man named Ananias. And Jesus appears to Paul on the road. And he cries out, he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul's like, what, what are you talking about? What? Who am I? I'm not persecuting you. And he said, I'm Jesus. You're persecuting my people. Therefore, you're persecuting me. I, Jesus, am the one that you are persecuting. And he gives Paul these instructions. He gives Ananias these instructions to give to Paul at the very beginning of his ministry. He says, this man, Paul, will be a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, the kind of the nations, the non-Jews, and before kings and before all the children of Israel. For I will show Paul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So at the very beginning of Paul's life, his ministry starts with these two profound ideas. One, God is on the throne and he's in control. He's writing Paul's story. And also, that story is going to include a lot of suffering. Uh, for Paul, there was the, the pain and the suffering of, of being wrong. 
You know, he's on the road, he's, and, Paul, and God is like, yeah, you've been walking down the wrong road for a long time, Paul, and I'm going to correct you. And Paul kind of wore that for the rest of his life. Uh, he mentions in one of his laters later on, he's like, I'm the least of all the apostles because I persecuted the church. He has this kind of record of his past, and he remembers it, and it humbles him. But then also there's the pain of carrying the message. This is a little bit of what God means when he says he's going to have to suffer for the sake of my name. Uh, Paul describes his ministry in 2 Corinthians like this. Um, Right before he talks about it all being a light and a momentary affliction, which is incredible. So listen to, this is what Paul thinks a light and momentary affliction is. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys I was in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, toil, hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, often without food, in cold, and exposed. And if that's not enough, he says, apart from all the other things, there's this daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who's weak in the church and I don't feel weak? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? Paul's entire ministry is full of danger and suffering and pain, and yet he's able to look at it and say, this is all worth it. This is a light and a momentary affliction. And even at the very beginning of our passage in verse 24, He says, now I am rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake. Paul, at this point, is writing from a Roman prison. He's in chains. And he's saying, I'm rejoicing right now in my sufferings. Now, I I just, we, we need to clarify for a second. Because Paul's not a masochist. Paul's not saying, suffering is great. Let's all suffer as much as we can. Because suffering is fun. Paul is actually... um, talking about a specific kind of suffering. He's saying, I'm rejoicing in the suffering that I'm experiencing for your sake. And I think it's important to uh, kind of um, mark that off. Uh, The Bible describes three different types of suffering that we can uh, undergo. Uh, There's deserved suffering, which is when our sins catch up with us and we feel the pain and the consequences of our actions. Uh, There's innocent suffering where we we don't sin. This is kind of like Job. Uh, We don't do anything wrong, but we still suffer because of the just the cursedness of all of the world and the injustice of the world. That's a a natural a natural disaster. Um, This is an illness, uh, cancer that that comes in. You don't do anything to deserve it. And the Bible actually says there is suffering that you can't trace back to some kind of cause in your own life. There's just innocent suffering. That happens. And then there's this third kind of suffering that Paul's talking about righteous suffering. That's the kind of suffering that we experience because we're being obedient to God. But what's important for us to remember is over all of those kinds of suffering, God is in control. Paul is experiencing this third kind, but, but his view of God shapes the way he thinks about all kinds of pain and suffering and, and all of the different ways that we experience pain. At the very beginning, we need to see what Paul sees is that really there are no accidents for the Christian. 
that even though you can't trace every kind of pain or difficulty back to some kind of one-to-one cause, and in fact, it's really unhelpful and actually harmful for us to try to do that in people's lives sometime, like kind of Job's friends did in the Bible, we need to remember that from the very outset, Paul's committed to this idea that the God of the Bible does not make mistakes. And the Jesus that he just talked about in the preceding passage is a Jesus who holds the entire creation in his hands, that everything holds together in him. He is all-powerful, but he is also all-good, and he is holding our lives in his hands. So the Christian life begins with this recognition both that God is in control and that also God is good. God is our friend. God is our husband. God is for us. And if this all-controlling, all-Lord, all-sovereign God is holding us in his hands, then every part of your story is being superintended by God. You're never alone, and God is never not in control. Uh, This is one of our favorite things that we love to say in RUF, uh, both to students, and I said it to my interns the other day, and they said it to me, and then um, they say it every time I go to any kind of training. It's this, God is at work. In all things, in good things and bad, God is doing something. God is never not working. God is never uh, out of control. And uh, one practical way this works out is every time I go to sit with a student, like we're going to have coffee um, and just talk about their life or talk about some issue that they're having with a roommate or um, some struggle, um, I usually start by praying And I usually start by praying something like this. God, we know that you brought us together here for a reason. That this student is in the classes that she's in, that she's in the dorm that she's in, um, that we passed by the people that we passed by on the way to this meeting because of your sovereign plan. And that everything about what we're going to say and do here is being seen by you and being held in your hands. So God, would you direct us and would you guide us? We trust that you are going to work in this meeting. Now, what does that do? Actually, it takes a lot of pressure off of me as a minister to recognize that God doesn't show up when I get there. God is already working. And so I'm not trying to bring God to the godless campus of UNCW. In fact, God is already working there, and God is holding that campus in his hands. And I am his servant to go and to try to cooperate with his spirit and what he is doing there on that campus. And so um, I was sitting with this student and kind of prayed that prayer, and she was talking to me just about this season of anxiety and depression that's really been um, just debilitating for her. And, she's, and she looked at me and she said, you know, I just, I'm sick of feeling bad. Like, I just feel distant from God. And uh, she's like, and it's so funny because just last semester, I remember I was praying for God to draw me closer to him. And now I just feel like I'm farther away from him. And I was able to say, God heard your prayer. God is holding you in his hand. And that even this uh, season of darkness, don't you see that if God's holding you in his hand, everything that comes to hit you had to pass through him to get to you. It's come into your life because he, he let it pass through his hands. And so you're not alone. This isn't an accident. 
And God is in charge of this. And so Paul, even before he begins to speak about his ministry, he has this foundation at the very beginning that God is at work. God is in charge. God is on the throne. And then he moves to explain his current circumstances in light of that truth. Paul moves into showing us he's two big motivations for him that help him move through this kind of necessary difficulty of the righteous suffering that we experience when we're trying to live for God. And the two uh, motivations are this. One, Paul remembers that gospel ministry is full of glorious surprises. And number two, Paul is reminding us that gospel suffering happens in solidarity with Jesus. I'll unpack those two points for us first. That gospel ministry is full of glorious surprises. Paul describes his working and his agonizing. Uh, that's what it talks about when he says uh, toil there in, um, in uh, chapter 2, verse 1. That struggle and that toil in chapter 1, 29. Struggling with all his energy that he works within me. What is he struggling for? Paul talks about struggling for this thing called a mystery. <laughs> And that that mystery is the center of Paul's mission. And when he speaks about his mission, it's like he's captivated by this beauty, by this treasure of the mystery. Now, um, when the Bible talks about a mystery, especially when Paul talks about a mystery, Paul isn't saying, oh, you know, I'm never going to know the reasons for why I'm doing ministry. It's a mystery, so we're never going to be able to figure it out. It's kind of hidden in the mind of God. There are mysteries like that. The Bible calls those the hidden things that we can't understand about God's purposes. But when Paul talks about a mystery here, that's not what he's talking about. The Greek word mystery that he means, which by the way, it's the word mysterion, which sounds like a superhero's name. It's just fun to say. Um, So Paul is talking about this mysterion, and he's saying uh, for Paul, a mystery isn't something that's inaccessible to us. A mystery is something that has been covered up, but now God has uncovered and showed to his people. A mystery isn't a secret, according to Paul. When Paul uses the word mystery, it's not a secret, it's a surprise. Uh, In our family, we have a conversation with our kids uh, where we say, okay, in our family, we don't keep secrets. We have surprises. So if an adult ever tries to like tell you to keep something secret, we don't do that in our family because we don't keep secrets from each other. But one thing we do do is we talk about surprises. So there might be things that you don't know, but we're going to show you and kind of unveil to you at some point in celebration. And my daughter is awful, awful with surprises. Like she cannot hold it in. Like as soon as something happens, if we're like planning... Um, you know, a gift or a, a special event for someone, you know, you'll come home and it's just written all over her face. And she's like, guess what we did today? Guess what, guess, guess what mom's making for dinner? Guess what? You know, and so, and I'm exactly that same way. And, and actually, Paul is the exact same way. Because Paul's saying, there's this surprise that I can't wait for God to reveal to you. What is the surprise? This is what Paul says. This mystery... Uh, hidden for ages and generations, verse 26, 
but is now being revealed to his saints, the riches of the glory of this mystery. And he's going to get more specific. What is the mystery, Paul? The mystery is Christ in you, verse 27. And what's really remarkable here is that that, word, that phrase, Christ in you, Paul's not saying it's Christ in you specifically, Calvin, or Christ you know, in your heart, Mike. He's saying it's Christ in y'all. That word in Greek is, is a plural. This mystery, this surprise that God has been kind of covering up for ages and we didn't know what it was going to look like and then all of a sudden God unveils it, it's Christ in all of you. It's Christ in the church. Why is that remarkable? Why is that surprising? What is that, why is that motivating? Well, for Paul, he's speaking to this church in Colossae, which has a group of uh, Jewish people in it who have kind of always been uh, known as God's kind of inside people. So you've got those people in it. You've got people who were non-Jews, but they've been trying to, to follow God. And then you've got this third group of, of new converts, People are brand new into the faith who grew up in a kind of pagan background, had no connection to God whatsoever, kind of lived a pagan lifestyle. And then Paul's looking at them and he's saying, you know what? This is the glorious surprise. From before the foundation of the world, God planned not just to be with you, not just to be for you, but to be in you, all of you. And it's almost as if, you know, you could hear as the church is hearing this letter, they're saying, me too? Even me? Even a pagan like me? Even some, someone like me? Uh, you know, r- right before uh, Paul talks about the people in this church in chapter 21 who used to be alienated in hostile mind, doing evil deeds. That's what this church was like. And he said, even people like us who were alienated from God, Paul saying, yes, even people like you, Christ is going to live in you. And that there's something in Paul's mind about the beauty and the majesty and the glory of Christ in y'all that's more motivating to him than just Christ in a single person. That there's, some, there's more Jesus when God's community is together in all its diversity, in all its kind of difference, in all of our different stories and our struggles. Christ in us is more beautiful, is more manifest when we're all together in our differences. And so this is just this thing that's so motivating to Paul. And he looks at it and he says, you know, I I just think about Jesus working through all of you together in community. That's something that we talk about in RUF all the time. That we're not just um, a ministry that shares Christ when people go and have conversations with other people. That happens. We're not just... Uh, a ministry that shares Christ when people come to an event and hear a speaker. That happens too. But primarily what I'm trying to do and our interns are trying to do is we're trying to build a community of students on campus that displays the gospel so that whenever you connect to that group of students, whether it's on an intramural field or you know when we were playing basketball in the outdoor courts this last Friday and I kind of random guy walked up and we just invited him to come play with us. That, that he's seeing something of Christ. He's getting connected to something of, of Christ. That our community somehow makes the gospel more plausible for people and makes them know, makes them ask, what do those people believe? What's their deal? And then we get to tell them. So Paul is excited about building this group 
with this future orientation of hope. Because he's saying, if God has come to be in you, in this crazy mixed up group of people, that means the kingdom has come. And the kingdom is coming. That Jesus' plan to restore and renew all of creation is starting right now with you restored and renewed people. So we can have hope. And as we look then, that, that helps us kind of get a perspective on suffering. Because Paul is saying that as we suffer in ministry, we don't suffer isolated, right? We suffer in Christ and we suffer in solidarity with Jesus. Solidarity with Jesus. Let me explain what that means. (laughs) It means you're intimately connected with him. It means you're never alone. It's it's that, that idea of being in Christ means that God isn't just for you. He's not just beside you, but God is living in you and working in you and connected in you in this radically intimate way so that even when you don't know it, even when you don't feel it, you are a person in Christ. Last night when you went to bed, When you closed your eyes, you slept as a person in Christ. When you woke up this morning, you were in Christ, even though you didn't do anything except dream. Right now, you are hearing this as a person in Christ. You are radically connected to Jesus. And that changes Paul's perspective on his sufferings. And this, this kind of helps us explain that, that, that what is, I think, the strangest verse in this whole passage, maybe in the whole letter. Verse 24, Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. What the heck is Paul talking about? There's something lacking in Christ's afflictions? What, what, what is he talking about? Well, if you look back in verse 22... Paul talks about Jesus suffering and dying in his body of flesh and how that suffering leads to his people being reconciled to God. This is part of God's necessary plan that Jesus would suffer in his human body and die a redemptive death on the cross. And now Paul is going to say, now I'm suffering because there's still suffering that has to happen in Christ's body. But that suffering... That rejection, that trial that Christ's physical body was subjected to now as part of God's plan for healing and renewing all things, God's spiritual body is experiencing that suffering. And Paul's saying, I want to do my share. There's still some suffering that's, that's lacking, that, that's left to be done. And I want to take up an oar and I want to suffer in connection with Jesus because just as his suffering on the cross redeemed and restored and rescued, my suffering as a member of his body is going to push his plan of redemption forward. That's Paul's motivation for suffering. And so there's just, that means that we can look back at the cross And we can see that the suffering that we experience in Christ is not worthless. That's why Paul can say it's a light and a momentary affliction. He's saying we have to take up our oar. We have to do what's necessary. In Romans 8, Paul talks about the birth pains. How all of creation is groaning because the the new creation is coming. And those birth pains are a signal that something new is happening. 
that life is coming into the world. And so the sufferings of the church, the sufferings, the righteous sufferings that people experience when someone rejects you, uh, when you step out in a conversation and, and there's gossip happening and you, and you don't participate in it, right? And they exclude you. Uh, or when you're kind of hanging out at work uh, with friends and someone tells a racist joke and then you don't kind of join in. In fact, you say, hey, I, I, I really uh, don't appreciate you saying that. And they reject you and they despise you for standing up for what's right and just and good and beautiful and true. Um, those are necessary kind of sufferings that help move God's light into the world. And that's the part that we have to play in God's redemptive plan. What God is saying is that in his kingdom, no pain is wasted. God might be allowing us to feel pain, to shape us, and to make us beautiful, but we know that there is a crown after every cross that God calls us to bear. Uh, later in, in the book of Hebrews, we see this, and this is, this is our motivation. It says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How are we going to do that? How are we going to endure? How are we going to press on? Well, we're going to look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Church, friends, when you feel like you're about to, to grow weary, remember you are a person in Christ, and that as Paul says, you are able to toil and struggle with all of his energy that he's working through you. He has given you the ability to endure. He has given you the power to stand. Would you rest in him? Would you lean on him? Would you look to Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us, for rescuing us, for uh, calling us to be a part of your family, and also for giving us the honor of sharing in the birth pains of seeing the new creation come into the world. Lord, uh, would you be displayed in us more and more? Would people see Christ in us and through us more and more in our difference, in our diversity, um, and even in our suffering? Would Jesus be made known? We thank you uh, that you are holding us in your hands and that you've committed yourself to our cause. In Jesus' name, amen.